0: Welcome to Cream, Eggs and Jam,
1: a podcast for food nerds with show and tell by Elise Bulbrook and Scott Bagnell.
0: We love to cook with cream, eggs and jam and learn from food people who give a damn.
1: So join us each week for thoughts, tips and tricks with guests, recipes and more in the mix.
0: Hey, Scotty.
1: Yes?
0: Why couldn't the fungus have people over?
1: Oh, I have no idea.
0: Well, she didn't have mushroom.
1: <laughs> is this a subtle hint? Are we talking mushrooms today?
0: It's episode eight and we are talking mushrooms. Yes.
1: <laughs> yes. This is one of my favorite topics. Um, I'm very excited to talk mushrooms today.
0: Welcome to Cream Eggs and Jam. I'm Elise Pilbrook. <laughs>
1: And I am Scott Bagnall, and I am coming to you today from Yagara country.
0: And I am coming to you from Wurundjeri country. We would like to start this week and every week by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land on which you're recording this podcast and pay our respect to elders past, present and emerging.
1: Mushrooms.
0: (laughs) Yes, yes. Now, we have learnt quite a bit in preparation for this podcast, and... I believe your repertoire, Scotty, of recognising mushrooms has increased exponentially.
1: It has increased exponentially because I went on a weekend mushroom extravaganza. (laughs) Last weekend on Saturday, I went for a mushroom meander um, with Martin Martini and Thomas, two mushroom nerds. It was amazing. We went through the forest and they identified, I don't know how many different species we found, probably 20 different species. I've, I don't think I've ever seen that many. They sort of showed us how to identify mushrooms and even like find them, like what to look for. Because sometimes they're hidden under leaf litter and logs and trees and stuff like that. Mm. And so that was pretty amazing. Do you know what? I learned that a mushroom is actually the flower of the fungus
0: did you know this no i had no idea that
1: when a mushroom pops up the majority of the plant um and the fungi is below the surface so it is in the soil and the the bit that pops up out of the ground is essentially like the flowering component of the fungus, so when you oh. pick a mushroom, you're not. That's not the end of that mushroom. You haven't destroyed the plant, and that's it. Red Rover, it's over. Yeah. Um, the The rest of the fungus is still down there. So um, that was an interesting fact in terms of mushroom foraging. You're not. Um, I guess. Re- um, you're not reducing that plant or removing it from that environment. Mushrooms actually want you to pick them, and in picking them you're spreading those spores and taking them to new wonderful places.
0: Yeah, I love it. So how fun is that? within this meander, Scotty, how many mushrooms did you see that you think were completely inedible? Like what percentage do you think were dangerous mushrooms?
1: Look, this is a very interesting question and why I wanted to go on this walk because I have never tried a mushroom in the wild before. I'm petrified um, because... There are some that are deadly poisonous and there's some that are completely edible, but how do you know? Mm. Um, And rightly and wrongly, maybe, the result of my walk still hasn't given me a lot of confidence because it's very complicated. The best advice that both Martin and Thomas gave was before you consider eating anything, you should get three expert opinions to identify Mm. the mushroom. Um, And that was good. There's some amazing sites on um, Facebook, Facebook groups about mushroom identification. There's an Australian and New Zealand fungus identification group, which Thomas is very active in. Mm. And um, so that was really good advice. I thought that's very practical. Don't eat anything. Because what they were saying is there's mushroom varieties that look exactly the same. And the only way you can tell the difference is the colour of the spores. Mm. So you do a spore print, which is putting the mushroom on a piece of paper overnight, and it drops the spores. And sometimes the spores will be brown, sometimes they'll be green. And one's edible, one's not edible.
0: Wow.
1: Yeah, it can be minute differences between the two. And both um, Thomas and Martin are going on the journey of identifying species and trying some of these species for the very first time in the world to see whether they are edible. So they were so brave. But by the time they get to that point that they're eating them, they have done a lot of research. They've spoken to a lot of experts. They've documented it. They've seen that mushroom five or ten times um, mm-hmm. before they commit to to trying a piece. And then they have like the smallest, littlest piece and then wait and see. Yeah. And then have a little bit more. Um, so it's... It's not just jumping into the forest and eating every mushroom you see.
0: No, you, you need to also acknowledge like, what it actually means to be an expert. If you go and pick a mushroom and mm. upload a picture of it to Facebook, hoping someone else will might, you know, possibly could know what it is, don't rely on the three comments that you get. You rely mm. on the opinions of people who understand mushroom behaviour, mushroom science, Experts are people with credibility, so don't just rely on someone who says, oh, that looks like a slippery jack, because it could be something else. It could be a slippery Jill.
1: (laughs) Yes, exactly. I love Mm. some of these names. Mm. And one of the interesting facts that um, they mentioned is that only about 2% of the mushroom population or species in Australia has actually been identified There are so many different um, species that haven't been identified and hasn't even had a chance to to work out what the classification of mushrooms are. Like, how do you classify them and what are their types and naming them? Oh, my gosh, Mm. they've got these massive Latin names that go on for 20 or 30 letters. I couldn't possibly even start to pronounce them. Um, But, yeah... They, they were incredible. So we are going to talk to Thomas, who came on the walk, and he's a massive mushroom nerd. We're going to ask him a few tips about foraging and get his journey into the wonderful world of mushrooms. And we are also going to talk to an amazing chef, I am so excited. Nathan from Elsker is the, co- is the owner and executive chef at Elsker. This is my favourite restaurant in Australia, at least. I'm calling this right now.
0: <laughs> I feel I'm terrible that I haven't it, been. I need to come to Brisbane. You need
1: to come.
0: Why am I not um, booking a flight? <laughs> I know,
1: But Nathan created this extraordinary menu. So on the Sunday after my mushroom walk, I did a 19-course mushroom degustation at Elskar with uh, 21 different wild foraged mushrooms on the menu. Yeah,
0: that is nuts. That is just to be able to do that. We we, we we speak to Nathan about this and he mentions that he probably slept just a couple of hours in a couple of days.
1: Yeah, mental. I have no idea. I wouldn't know where to start. And particularly with all these different varieties of mushrooms, it's not as if you've made several dishes before and know how they behave and what they taste like. Mm. A lot of these mushrooms, Nathan, was trying for the
0: first time. Yeah, incredible. So, as we um, prepare to speak to these fun guys, um, <laughs> <laughs> shall we have a bit of a chat uh, first about this week's episode of MasterChef?
1: Oh, we definitely should. Um, what was this week's episode?
0: Uh, this week's was... Sunday night episode. I, sh- I, sh- oh, I yeah. always refer to this week's episode, but there's like five in a week. You know us. <laughs> no. we, only, we only really think about the Sunday <laughs>
1: It's the sort of the most immediate episode before we start planning this podcast. So, yeah. um, and it's usually the biggest episode and the most exciting. And So, yeah, that's why we pick yeah. Sunday.
0: It's an all-in, usually. An all-in. Every yeah. contestant has their life on the line.
1: Yes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Did you watch it? No. <laughs> <gasps> I know, I know. I, <laughs> I want to to be able to watch it I really do I particularly I want to be able to watch the New Zealand Masterchef that's on at the moment Masterchef yes. New Zealand because our friend Sam is a contestant um I need to His change dishes are beautiful my, Have you changed your whatever it is on your computer that thinks no. you're in Australia
1: okay. No can someone tell mm-hmm. us how to do that <laughs>
0: yeah, you need, you need to do something to trick your computer that you're in a different country, and then you can watch. But um, I've
1: seen Sam's posts, and like the dishes he's posting are beautiful.
0: Yes, partly one of the reasons I haven't watched Sam yet. It's not because of my own trauma relating to MasterChef, but it's it's also just timing. You know, busy people don't <laughs> watch a lot of television. But no. Busy people can catch up on television, so that's always good. What yes. was the challenge on Master Master Chef Australia on Sunday night, Scotty?
1: Well, they had the amazing Rick Stein in the house. Oh, I'm so love jealous. What? I know. Where are all these amazing chefs when in our season?
0: We got jibbed. <sighs>
1: <laughs> he was in the house, and mm. um, the episode was about travel memories. Um, okay. So the contest, Rick Starr actually made this beautiful fish curry from India. Gorgeous. Oh, um, mm. So did a little sort of masterclass. And then the contestants were encouraged to cook a dish that um, took the judges on a journey to a travel experience that they'd
0: had. Yeah. So a yeah. lovely
1: little challenge. I think it was super cute.
0: Yeah. No, it, it makes me think of what I would have made. But you I immediately... I also think what would the judges have allowed me to make? Because mm. if I ever did make something that was Southeast Asian or inspired by something non-Italian, my feedback was generally, oh, it's good, but you can do better. But if I made something mm. Italian, it was generally flawless. So there was that. There was that. And...
1: <laughs> <laughs> K- Kama um, cooked an Italian dish because she yeah. has her partner's um, Nonna is Italian, Aww. but she was petrified to present that dish to Jock.
0: Yeah, yeah, she would <laughs> be. She did
1: very well. Jock loved it.
0: Well, that's it. They've quite, they can be forgiving. It, you know, <laughs> I think the old judges had a lot more expectation, I think, attached to pasta than the current ones, to be honest. Yes. The old judges really didn't like... Um, I think cold pasta. I think the current judges are forgiving because Mm. they know that the time constraint really affects your ability to enjoy fresh pasta. Um, Obviously on MasterChef, you're always serving the judges cold food. Um, That's the magic of television, unfortunately. Um, Yes. uh, That's what's at play, you know. Anyway. um, What would you have made? Yeah. Um... I do tend to think of of dishes I ate in Italy as well, to be honest. Mm. I would have had to go down that route to be strategic in that context. And I probably would have made something that I ate in Piemonte at a dinner that has been really memorable. And uh, it was held at the University of Gastronomic Sciences. So I was there as part of a job. And... I absolutely fell in love with this university and I've always wanted to go back to be able to study there. It's very expensive and very, very much um, a privilege to be able to study at this place. Mm -hmm. Um, It's like Hogwarts for food people. Oh, I love it. Yeah. Food nerds in particular. (laughs) (laughs) I would be happy to actually do any course there. I would do any course there if I had time and money. (laughs) Um, I ate, one of the courses that has been extremely memorable was a um, pasta al limone and you probably have seen a recipe for something similar um, in a few Italian cookbooks. On this occasion, this pasta was incredibly light and the sauce incredibly fragrant. I think it was one of my favourite pasta dishes that I ate in Italy during that trip and what was so lovely about it as well was that that lemon entree mirrored a lemon dessert. and Oh, uh, yeah, Ugh, yeah. It wasn't a dish typical of the region, but it was a dish that was prepared by a chef of the Amalfi Coast. So the lemons oh, that he brought wow. up to Piemonte were real, you know, gorgeous, famous Amalfi lemons.
1: Oh, my goodness. And how's the yeah. lemon incorporated into the dish?
0: Mm. So it's a creamy sauce. You oh, could make it with mascarpone uh-huh, and lemon okay. zest and pecorino. Anyway, what would you have made? Ooh, oh, gosh,
1: that's a hard one. Um, I've travelled to a lot of different places, but I think probably one of the things that sticks in my head is um, Singaporean mud crab mm. with Mantao, like these... Deep-fried bread donut things that you dunk into the juices. Tiger beer. <gasps> yeah. Singaporean chili mud crab man how dunking all the juices. <laughs> that I I remember that distinctly in a hawkers market overlooking the bay, covered. You get a big bib that you tie around your um mm. <laughs> tie around your neck, and you just dig in. And my goodness, it was good.
0: And you're a lover of crabs, so.
1: Oh, yeah, a big seafood lover. It would have to come down to seafood of some description.
0: Yeah, and it would be very strategic too because the judges love crabs. So you've got a few boxes ticked there, Scotty Bagnall. (laughs) Yeah. Scotty, we can be sad about not travelling right now. You know, lots of people are going to Europe. But you know what? There's so much here in Australia, particularly during this cold and wet season that we have to be grateful for and Mm -hmm. mushrooms of course are a part of that story you had the absolute privilege to go to the mushroom digger station at Elsker and I suppose if I am not mistaken that was an incredibly soul um, awakening and transportative experience
1: Look, it transported me to the middle of Scandinavia, um, Denmark sitting in a beautiful restaurant. Their cuisine is so embodies Nordic cuisine in such an exceptional level. The restaurant itself has got such a beautiful attention to detail. Not only do they change their menu seasonally, they changed the decoration and the theme of the restaurant. And it celebrates seasonality, which I think is one of the most important things in modern cooking today. So I can't wait to talk to Nathan. Let's dive in. Today we are joined by Nathan Donnell, executive chef and owner of my favourite restaurant in Australia, Elska. I am super excited to have Nathan with us today. Thank you so much for joining us.
2: Yeah, it's my pleasure. It's a privilege to be here.
1: Nathan, do you want to tell us a little bit about, um, I guess, your journey to Elsker? Um, I believe you started about six years ago. Um, tell us a little bit about that journey. Tell us about Elska, how it came to be. Your food is amazing, so I'd love to know how it all sort of started.
2: Um, we, My partner and I, Freya, um, originally started by with with a cafe a simple cafe i was working at stoke house at the time um and it just got to a point where i wanted to trial my own thing and just see how it would go um and we, we decided cafe was the i guess um a good stepping stone um you know less less problems well th- that's what we thought there'd be less problems less kind of things to mitigate um We were a little bit incorrect with that, but that's fine. Anyhow, we we started (laughs) with a cafe, built up our experience with that, and then I kind of got a bit over the whole bacon and eggs um, saga. It was just there was a very small window to work (laughs) in between, um, and that started to to really drive me a bit crazy. Um, And I I did not enjoy working in that environment anymore because you know, it was very tight. It was very crammed. Um, there, there, were things you could try and do, but at the end of the day, the price point was a struggle and the creative aspect at the end of the day, there had to be eggs on something there had to be bacon with something, you know, like the window was very small and it, it just left you creatively like, why are we doing this? So at the end of the day, which, um, transformed that into, we had a year left in our lease and we thought we'd roll the dice and trial, you know, what I wanted to do, which was a, you know, degustation restaurant. Um, and you know, work closely with our farms, suppliers, everything like that, and try and really build, you know, stories behind the food. Here we are now, what are we? Two years into Elsker and doing our thing.
1: And you just recently won the best restaurant in Queensland. That's a remarkable effort.
2: Yeah, that was um, that was unexpected. You put your heart and soul into something, and it's kind of it's, it's nice to get a bit of a, a, a reward or recognition. I think it's that balancing point though, where you can't go chasing um, can't go chasing trophies and, and you know all these things because new things happen. But also when you get that kind of pat on the back, mm. it's like, okay, yep, yeah, we're going in the right direction. Especially for us. I mean, I didn't train under anyone, you know, like uh, my resume is pathetic in terms of uh, a lot of the other culinary um, professionals I look at. But at the end of the day, it's kind of cool to see where you are right now. And there's a point of like, people are saying, yes, you're in the right direction. It, it's, it's nice to see.
0: Don't, don't undersell yourself. These kinds of awards, they aren't random. Um, there's, there's a lot more uh, at work, I suppose. And for you to, to receive an accolade like that, um, being a, a restaurant in Queensland, um, you know, mentioning you don't have perhaps the resume, you know, sometimes the people with the resume get the awards because it's who they know. And you know, they're the awards that I don't believe in. <laughs> Just putting that out there, you're not wrong, but
1: yeah. And what a journey for going from a cafe cooking bacon and eggs to a Scandinavian restaurant in Queensland, which sounds like such an oxymoron almost in terms of this beautiful <laughs> Scandinavian cuisine and in a tropical climate like Queensland. Um, and to win, you know, the best restaurant in Queensland. That is such a remarkable journey and such a remarkable achievement. What do you – why Scandinavian food? What drew you to that um, and coming up with that as your restaurant concept, I guess?
2: Um, my partner, Freya, is um, Danish. So her, her parents are here as well and, you know, we, we see each other weekly um, and there's – there's always a story about food. Like it always, weirdly enough, revolves around food. Um, And the need to be hyper-seasonal, especially, you know, hundreds of years ago when fridges weren't a thing and the agricultural um, upbringing or the knowledge wasn't around, you know, seasonality was crucial. And it's kind of so interesting to think that you know, we don't really apply that enough. I think personally in Australia, so it was sort of something I wanted to bring to the restaurant and say, "Well, hey, like, why are we trying to put these things up when they're not in season, or why are we why are we paying ten dollars for an iceberg lettuce when it's not available?" These kind of things, you know, like. Um, so it was driven mm. primarily from my partner. Um, and I I think there's a common term for Nordic cuisine and what is that? And, you know, you can look at the Nordic cuisine manifesto and it's essentially just about being hyper seasonal, like highlighting, where are you, what is growing there and how are you highlighting it? And I, I, I mean, you can call this Nordic Australian, I suppose, but. I think it's just about highlighting the seasons at the end of the day. We do, we do have influence, though. I mean, like there's a lot of fish creams, um, that seafood and cream combination that you find in the Scandinavian countries or the Nordic regions, um, definitely. And there's a mm-hmm. lot of recipes that I've adapted from my father-in-law, my mother-in-law, and, and, and their, their parents as well. Without doubt, because I think it's it's really interesting now. It's like we've seen Italian, we've seen French, we've seen a lot of these influences. And they're beautiful, but I think it's also maybe something different is interesting too. Nordic food, like no one's really tried a airlesskiva, or no one's really tried a lot of the Danish breads or the way that they treat the seafood. Mm. All the fats and the creams with the fishes. Like it's it's not a common occurrence. And, you know, Scott, you've you've experienced Elsker more than once. And I think it's, I would dare say it's probably not something you'd really come across often. I would say, but.
1: No, I think that's one of the most, Remarkable and beautiful things about Elska is you spoke about that hyper seasonality. And I think sometimes seasonality is treated a little bit tokenistic. It's sort of like um, stone fruits in season, so it's on the menu. But you really take seasonality to that next level. You have like four different menus a year based on the season. Um, and those menus really highlight and celebrate the season, not from just a a produce perspective the produce is seasonal but the concept of seasonality i think is expressed so beautifully in your menu
2: oh that's it's good to hear i mean and and that's the it's good to hear that you're finding that as well because i mean it's something i try and really emphasize in the menus that it's not just about you know like you said stone fruits are in season that's terrific but Um, like apricots, you might only get at the start of the stone fruit season and plums towards the end or the, you know, these small, minute changes that occur throughout each season. It's just, you have to be on top of it and Mm. constantly like talking to the farmers, talking to everyone about what's happening, the weather. I mean, like in Queensland, it's just, to be honest, it's a nightmare trying to write a menu right now because everywhere's waterlogged. (laughs) They're, they're full of water. They should be growing brassicas. Yeah. They should be growing all these different things, but they can't because it's full of water. So, I mean, it's it's a testimony to, I think, you know, the, the farmers and what they're going through. And it's like, I must struggle writing a menu, but imagine how they're going. But again, it's just like, that's the story. That's the honest oh, yeah. truth behind how things are. You know, everyone's crying about paying $10 for an iceberg lettuce, but I mean try to be the farmer that has to try and sell that or grow that.
0: There's so much creativity to be maximised when you're in tune with what's actually available. I'm, I'm wondering if you could share with us, you know, for listeners who would still buy blackberries at this time of year, for example, You know, it's cold, it's winter, we definitely don't have any blackberries growing anywhere, really. But if people nah. were to buy blackberries at the supermarket... You know, what is wrong with that, according to you?
2: The pressure it's going to put on a farmer to be constantly seasonal. Um, and the idea of that, I mean, like we've all had a blackberry when they're in season and then we've all had a blackberry out of season. And the difference is just night and day. So for me, it's like, why are we paying Mm -hmm. double the price to have 10% of the product? Like, why can't we just accept it's not available? Or, I mean, like, uh, I hate using the word frozen, but have a frozen blackberry and make it into something warm and delicious that does match a season. Um, I, I don't see why we're putting mm, our farmers that kind of strain to try and grow something not in season, sell it for four times a price, have a product that is subpar.
0: I'm, I'm also wondering, like, what's your perspective on the food miles of ingredients that you – will use in your restaurant? Um, are you looking for hyper-local everything or are you willing to source ingredients that come from nine hours away? What's what's your approach according to, you know, in terms of proximity to this, your restaurant of ingredients? Oh, this
2: question is so... Um, oh, this is such a hard question because it, it, it just... Thomas Keller touches on it as well. You can get a tomato that's grown a kilometer away. It's a good tomato. You can buy the best tomato you've ever had 50 kilometers away and it's the best tomato you've ever had. What tomato do you buy then? Do you buy an average tomato a kilometer away or do you mm. go 50 kilometers for the best product for your clientele? It's local in terms of you're not you're not going overseas. Mm. You're still, you know, theoretically trading upon, you know, a, a region that's close to you, but define local. I mean, I have to go, no matter what mm-hmm. I do, if I want seafood, I have to go to the coast. I mean, if I, if you want, you know, Chris Bolton fish, he catches up in the, the Great Barrier Reef, so I've got to travel for that. Um, Marin, for argument's sake. Um mm western australia but they're gonna fly it over and i have to drive myself there to pick it up live and transport it. i mean like travel wise yeah like i need to think of something better to do than this and like for marin i've looked at now sweetwater crayfish which are a local product i still have to drive an hour is that good enough i mean like what's good enough now you know and and, i think becomes the tough question is like well everything i purchased now is within australia but not like not just within australia but like i know who's growing it i know who's supplying it i've talked to them i know their story um i deal with them i avoid trying to use big suppliers for things um so at least i can talk to them and know okay we're not going to have this in season because xyz um it still might be 150 kilometers away Australia's huge though. I mean, like,
3: mm.
2: and, and there's amazing things you can grow up north. There's amazing things at East Coast, South Coast, West Coast. Like, do we just neglect that because it's too far away? I mean, it becomes mm. a hard question.
0: What I'm getting is that there's, there's value in, in provenance and understanding the provenance of the ingredient. And not a lot of chefs know that because they do deal with the big produce. They do with the middle guy. The person that, you know, is just getting their bulk order. Um, you know, for you, what is um, I suppose what is the value of, of knowing where your food comes from?
2: If you talk to a farmer or you go to their farm and see what they do and how much hours they put in, the effort behind it, the actual product itself, you will not waste mm. anything. I mean like that's something we really probably don't drive enough at Elska, but we don't like our bins are just empty like there's nothing going into them um you know we do a little bit of scrap program with loot farms but apart from that we use everything misos garums, um salts vinegars any byproduct will turn into something that we can utilize for our next season next dish i mean scott you probably heard this like every single time you come in that we're using something from last season. Or we're using a byproduct from X season, whatever it might happen to be. But um, when you go to the farms, it forces you to do that because you see what they go through. Um, they might charge a little bit more as well, but it's so worth it to see where the money's going to. And it, it forces you to say, I might have paid more for this product, but I'm going to treat it with more respect. And then I'm going to get more value out of it.
3: It's,
1: yeah. Mm. That's one of the things Nathan, I love about your restaurant is that nose to tail sort of philosophy. And a lot of your dishes have like every element. Like there's a pumpkin um, dish that I remember that has, you know, the seeds, the skin, the flesh, the every part of that vegetable being celebrated on the plate. Um, whether it's a protein, it's every part of that protein celebrated on the plate. Um, And the thing that I love the most is all of these wild fermentations and garums and these things that you develop over years and years. Tell us a little bit about that process because some of them are wild. I've never even heard of them before.
2: There's been a project like I've been constantly working at um, probably since before Elske, but, you know, since I met my partner Freya and, you know, she opened up the window of – Nordic cooking, obviously that opens up nomas and, you know, geraniums and the rest of that. But how you can utilize a, pro- mm. a, a product and then extend the season. That's something I found so interesting with the Australian um, product, product is the fact that the seasons are so small. Like theoretically, you have seven seasons in Australia, depending what region you're in. But, you know, those seasons are just like mm-hmm. they've gone like that. How do you treat a product that's there for weeks? Okay, well, yeah, you can pickle it. You can do this, X, yes. Y, Z. But it's like bunny nuts. You know, make a miso, make a show you make these different things but Make something people aren't used to. Don't just dry them out and shave them, or you know, if I'm go- if Elsk is going to be here for a while, let's think of the ingredients that they're going to be here for a while. Let's instead of buying in a soy sauce or a shoyu, let's make our own. Or, you know, instead of worrying about a a vinegar, make your own vinegars. Like we've got plants coming out our ears. We've got all these things happening. Um, So it it started before Elska with my partner, her upbringing and her opening my eyes to the fact that, you know, there's more than four seasons. There's what when is the product its best? Buy as much as you can when it's its best. Mm. Find a way to use it fresh. And then in a year's time. Make that happen. That was like the general just that's how it needs to work.
1: So I guess we're pretty lucky in Australia that um Nordic countries go through these severe seasonal changes in terms of temperature and snow and ice and all of these extreme (laughs) conditions. And we're pretty pretty um, not as extreme in Australia in terms of our seasonality. So I think in that Scandinavian and Nordic cooking, that – type of seasonality and planning for the winter and extending food across a season is something we're not used to doing in Australia. But it makes sense exactly like you're saying, it, celebrating it, the product and extending the life of that product when it's at its best makes a whole lot of sense.
2: It really, like in the Nordic countries, it forces you into having to think months in advance about what you're doing. I mean, in Australia, we just, we really take, um, advantage of the weather and what we can just get onto su- supermarket shelves. And I'm not trying to sound like a horrible person. I'm just saying like, you know, if we're talking honestly, it's, it's true. Um, and you mm-hmm. see how Queensland and Northern New South Wales are going. We had rain for, for weeks and now they're all struggling. We're all struggling. In the sense that like how are we gonna grow stuff now? Um so it's just a way of planning things yeah. out and being aware that I guess you're never safe or you never know what's gonna happen. And it's harsh, but it's kind of a way that, you know, we can be more aware. Um and being aware of your menu I think is the best thing you can do for farmers, um, uh, for your suppliers, for anyone, your customers, you know you can communicate much better when you're in mm. a time of communication with your farmers, when you know your weather patterns, all these kind of things. It just helps everyone more.
1: When approaching your menu, you change your menu four times a year. How far in advance are you planning that next menu?
2: Ideally, I'd love to change like six or seven times a year, but I think my chefs would kill mm. me for that. So I have to balance <laughs> that. Out. Um, But in between those seasons, we've got like, I like to call it to the chef's micro changes or small changes. Um, You know, guava becomes unavailable. So we use quince or, you know, the craylings aren't growing as high as they should be. So we're using the claws. Small little changes will dictate the menus within those four seasons. Um, Is there a point in advertising that to the, the public? I don't know. Probably not. Um but within those four mm-hmm. seasons that we have, I would say when we launch a menu and it's you know, it's uh, when we launch the menu, I've already started thinking about the next menu. And in between that, there's just a gap of like what do customers like with the current menu and then what's gonna happen with the new menu. It's like that that first couple of weeks as a balancing point where I'm trying to kind of gauge, like, has the new menu gone well? Is it not so well? What do I need to change? And then also, like, okay, what can I start for the new menu and what should I hold off on? You know, um, blackening Mm -hmm. fruits and vegetables takes six weeks plus. If I want to do a trial, I need to start now. You know, I need to start at this, you know, the season beforehand and it's, it's, it becomes challenging because it's like, um, if the quince season is only available for eight weeks. I get them at the first week. I've got six weeks to wait to blacken them for argument's sake. I've got two weeks to know that the dish will work. So ordering wise, I was like, well, I hope it works, but I don't know. Um, so it just depends. Like how confident am I with the idea? Do I know what's going to happen? How experimental will it be? Am I testing for next year as well? You know, if I'm something really Mm. out there, is it for next year maybe? I don't know, it could be. Um, But I guess to answer your question, it would be I'm starting pretty much when I've launched the the new season. So I launched winter, you know, three weeks, two weeks ago. I'm probably thinking about spring. I'm thinking about spring now. But then because of the weather, I'm trying not to think about spring now because I've got no idea what's going to happen, what's going to be available. (laughs) (laughs) I'd rather not think about it.
0: The way you think about food, Nathan, is this something that you've developed during your career or is this something that you've always kind of carried with you?
2: I think it's something I've always carried with me because even before my apprenticeship, I would spend – Literally Friday night, Saturday night, and like Friday, Saturday, Sunday at home in mum's kitchen, just cooking macarons or cooking something benign, like unnecessary, um, for no reason. <laughs> like, I'd throw it out once I'm done because I wasn't happy with it either. Like, it was a weird relationship at the start. I just watched videos of how people would do it, and I'd uh, sort of try it on the weekend when I was 14, 15, and oh, it's not good enough and try it again and try it again every week. Um, so, I mean, like I love that, but it was probably not a healthy way to start. Um, <laughs> but then I kind of worked my way into the kitchens. I, I, I did a bachelor of business cause I, I didn't know what I wanted to do. In between that, I also took up a kitchen hand position. So, I was sort of trying to edge my way in. I, I didn't know how to go about it. And then um, I got told, you're a chef, you know, you're a cook, you're not a kitchen hand." Um, and then it sort of just developed from there. But I, I think I've always been like this. Like I, I never just picked it. Like my grandmother was a chef. My grandfather was a, um, a baker. My great-grandfather was a pastry chef. So there's always been something, I think, within me that's wanted to push for that. But... Mum and dad Um, certainly didn't want to push it hard because they knew the hours, yeah.
0: And a slippery Jack and Jill caramel (laughs) slice wouldn't have been something um, that your pastry chef ancestry would have made. Um, I'm wondering if you could walk us through what a slippery Jack and Jill caramel slice is for listeners to experience it vicariously through your descriptive language.
2: I'll try my best, but essentially we were giving, Martin delivered the two mushrooms, so Slippery Jacks and Slippery jewels. Um The Jacks we infused in a uh, honey kelp um, liquid that we made about a year ago to preserve them. The Slippery jewels, um we received, I think, the night before, so we lightly pickled them. Um, then we dried those out, diced them up, and we made a caramel mixture with the honey kelp, and the mushrooms that we preserved we made a caramel from that folded through the lightly pickled slippery jewels and then just serve that on a simple like uh kelp and almond um biscuit base and finish that with a bit of uh tempered chocolate i mean like nothing too hard
3: no <laughs> <laughs>
1: I would love to talk to you about this menu. I was lucky enough to do the mushroom walk with Martin Martini the day before. Um, And we went foraging in the forest, which was incredible. And then on the Sunday, Elska put together this incredible menu, like 17 courses, I think it was, Um, 21 different wild mushrooms. How many?
2: 19 in the end.
1: 19 courses. Sorry. It was next level. Um, Absolutely incredible. All of these mushroom species I've never tasted before in my life. Of all of those mushrooms that were on that menu, how many had you tried before? How do you develop a menu like this?
2: Oh, honestly, that was... It was as amazing as it was painful. Like, it was... It was serious. I learned so much, but it was, it was so hard. Um, I probably tried, I wouldn't say 10 different, 10 to 12 different types of mushrooms. I'd already been shown by Martin. Um, we would use before in the restaurant. Um, I had ideas of recipes for that as well, but then as the, and, and you know, the mushroom season was coming to an end. Um, it was the worst timing to do one of those functions in honestly, because we'd just done our new winter menu. And then on the Sunday we released the mushroom function. Um so I pulled my first 20 hour shift, which is amazing. I would love to do another one of them. <laughs> um, <but> not. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. But essentially the mushrooms are flooding on through each week. He'd find a succession of different types of mushrooms with all the rain we were getting as well. We're getting a lot of cool, interesting types. Um, he went to Melbourne, got some types, um, Tasmania. Um, and then on the last on Saturday night at 1130, he dropped off about four different types of mushrooms. And then we stayed up till one o'clock talking about the menu. And after that, I had to finish off prepping for the menu. So I was there till six o'clock and then woke up at eight o'clock in the restaurant trying to, you know, get service ready. So Whoa. it was amazing. Oh it was, God, Yeah, it was amazing. But it's just one of those things like I wouldn't want my kids to do it. It was amazing, but like <laughs> I, wouldn't, I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy. Like it was, it was very hard. It was. Yeah. It was taxing, but it was so cool. Like uh, Scott, I hope you loved it because it was it was really cool. We gave everyone an aphrodisiac in the first course, uh, first dessert course, should I say? Which Scott found out afterwards. So <laughs> I mean, I don't know, but I
0: should tell viewers that.
1: It was the most incredible meal I think I've ever had in my life. It was remarkably memorable because I just think it felt so special. Like these varieties of mushrooms, you can't buy in the shops. You will probably never come across again as a collective of 21 different wild mushrooms in the one meal. I can't imagine that ever being a thing again. (laughs) It was so unique. I particularly loved the menu description. Like it included the scientific name of the mushroom, which I couldn't pronounce for love nor money. It was insane. And then the storytelling and the journey between them all, they were all so different. I feel they heroed the mushrooms really well. I was intensely Googling a lot of the mushrooms to see what they looked like because I'd never even heard of them before.
2: I mean, it was amazing to have so many different types of mushrooms as well that like people hadn't heard of and half of them like a lot of them i'd never even seen or tasted the 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 cat's tongues to me just blew my mind absolutely blew my mind and was something i want to say provocative about eating them i mean scott i don't know like i think it was very uh polarizing how they went down
1: Probably because of the name. Had they not been named Cat's Tongue, I probably would have had a different experience because they were so much like eating a cat's tongue. Like they had the texture of a tongue, like the roughness on the top reminded you of a tongue, the gelatinous texture of them. It really felt like you were eating a cat's tongue and um, that is a little bit polarizing to be honest, but they were delicious. Mm-hmm. That drink was like mind blowing. I don't think I've ever experienced a drink. I don't, even, I don't even know what to classify it as. Was it a drink? Was it a dessert? Was it a soup? Was it a custard? Like I don't even know what it was. <laughs> it had its own category.
2: I don't know. For legal reasons I can't just dictate what it was
1: necessarily.
0: How do you have creativity when you when you're burning for that many hours? Often mm. I find if I'm exhausted, my judgment starts to just go downhill whereas I, don't know, I suppose some people who are night owls that's when that's when the greatest ideas happen. Like, what's the process like for you?
2: Um it was that was one of the hardest ones I've ever done in terms of the fact that the word mushroom came up so many thousands of times. I forgot what mushroom I was using. I I forgot what technique we were going to use for each mushroom. Like, it sounds silly, but 22, 23 mushrooms, you know, oh, yeah, you can keep track of that. But, you know, if you use a mushroom three different ways, if you do different mushrooms, different courses, like, it was absolutely mind-boggling. Like, I, I, I'm I, lucky we got through. In, in terms of just knowing what to do with each mushroom, like I tried the mushroom and, you know, you'd have to trial each mushroom a couple of different ways. Was it sweet? Was it savory? What texture do you want from it? All those different things. Yeah, by far the hardest <laughs> thing the menu I've done because of the fact that we're just doing mushrooms mm-hmm. and... Trying not to overbear everyone with mushrooms.
1: Wait, did you have a favourite dish? Hmm.
2: I... I really liked the um, blusher custard. It was intense. It was so strong. Um, Scott, you to remember that it was like eating a meat custard with these pickled mushrooms um, and yes. egg yolks. It was so intense. But I like the fact that, like... That was just mushroom, like the mushrooms did all of that. Yeah, and it was like it was an intense dish. It was strong. Like don't get me wrong, people are like oh that was powerful, um, but I kind of liked the fact that that was just a mushroom doing that. All of that dish. What about you? What was your you favourite course?
0: Yes.
1: Um, I think definitely the cat's tongue was like incredibly memorable. Um, yeah. That was just wild. That all the different combinations and textures and flavors, and I've never experienced a dish like that. I don't think I ever will again. To be honest, like it was mind blowing.
2: That's good to hear. That's what we want to hear. I so that's many like, good From an event like this, that's yeah. what you it's like, what's the point of doing it?
1: Where do you get your inspiration from? Um, do you have any food heroes that you follow? Um, uh, I mean, I've got food
2: here as I follow, but it's, uh, I've become aware it's very easy to copycat mimic and unintentionally do mm. what they do. Um, so I yes. look nature a little bit more in terms of like what she can do, you know, um, it's not copying necessarily cause you mm. never do it as good as she can do it. Um, but it's, it's honest, it's to the core, it ties in with what I want to do. Mm. I mean, you know, there's so many people doing amazing things. I look at um, Yornair, which does amazing things, Noma, Geranium. A lot of the Nordic restaurants, in my opinion, are hitting the mark. Um, not to segregate, you know, I don't fa- fancy the French restaurants, to be honest, um, just a personal opinion. Um, but a lot of the Nordic restaurants I'm really liking where they're taking things Um, and the the Australian restaurants I mean like the Pippet's you know Fleet what he you know what Josh was doing there Um, Ben Williams I mean gosh the list goes on in Australia but I mean again that becomes like if you focus on them you're going to step on toes so it's either better to shut your eyes Mm. and look at else than it is to you know have a someone you're fond of
1: yeah I think you know the originality of thought in your menu um, and that authenticity and that storytelling is really unique you can see that come through there's no one else that I've seen that's doing anything similar so it's super exciting
2: yeah that's good to hear I mean and that's what I want to hear in, in terms of like it would suck to hear like, oh, wow, this restaurant's amazing. It's like no more. It's like geranium or whatever. It's like, yeah, it might be great to be on that level, so to speak. But if I'm copying it, well, it's not authentic. You know, I think you got to find.
1: 100%.
2: Commonalities, and it's going to be very hard not to step on other people's toes. Um, But at the same time, you got to find who you are, or it's going to be it's going to exhaust you trying to be someone else.
0: What I always love to ask chefs is whether or not they have a pedagogy or a theory of practice. Um, Within the teaching career, you walk into a classroom with, with a pedagogy, that being a particular philosophy that guides how you teach. And you might be the kind of teacher that walks into a room and, you give your students some strict rules or perhaps you are a little bit more open-minded and um, you have more of a hands-off approach within within food i haven't come across a word that is appropriate
2: how i cook and how i teach are two like similar but different things i would like to say that you're only as good i mean this is a very common practice you guys would have heard that you're only as good as your last service and it just means you you can't really you can't take a step backwards like one of my core philosophies is about progression and it's about you know taking each menu needs to be a step forward a step forward like as soon as you plateau I mean especially in the hospitality industry it's just you don't have wiggle room like plateauing is just going down same thing Um, and it's harsh but it's true Mm. it's a horrible way to live and I mean But it just, it pushes you so hard, which is great because you'll think of, you hopefully will think of better things to do.
1: So Nathan, we like to cover top tips on this show and you are a master of the preserving and fermentation. So I'm wondering if you've got any tips for our listeners, if they're wanting to get more into preserving and fermentation, um, any hot tips for that?
2: I think it'd be great for people to read up on it before they go into it, um, I see a lot of people wanting to ferment, preserve, and they've read one book and they know it all. Um, mm-hmm. I love enthusiasm. I really do. But it's something you need to be aware of because you're starting to <laughs> work with bad <laughs> bacterias and that can make you and your family potentially very sick. Um, so I would say, please, anyone listening out there, like know what you're doing because you can have a good or bad influence on what's happening. Um, Fermenting is a really great thing, but you need to understand the pros and cons of it. That's probably my biggest thing. Um, Not to shy people away from it. I think that's really good advice. You know, like, you know, Scott, I'm sure you're aware of like a bad ferment versus a good ferment. And like, there's places out there doing great things. Yeah, there's places out there doing great things and places out there you're looking at going like, you can't do that, it doesn't work.
1: Well, thank you so much for joining us on our podcast. It has been an absolute pleasure and honour to talk to you. Um, We really value your time. Thank you for joining us.
0: Thank you so much, Nathan. As you can tell, Scotty is a big fan and I'm looking forward to, um, yeah, sleeping on Scotty's couch and um, having to, you know, Relive one of the dinners that Scotty likes to call and then tell me about after he goes and visits your restaurant.
1: (laughs) We're definitely going when you're coming to Brisbane.
2: Yeah, definitely. definitely. We'll we'll make room for it. Don't worry. Don't worry.
1: This dinner, like the the dinners at Elskar are always amazing, but this mushroom one will stick in my mind forever. I think it was such a a once-in-a-lifetime Opportunity. I can't imagine having 21 different wild forages mushrooms on a menu anytime again soon. <laughs> yeah,
0: once in a lifetime and a testament to the, using the knowledge that you have in your hands. You know, he mm. hasn't spent weeks preparing that particular no. degustation because the, those weeks weren't available, but... Mm. It just goes to show when you are someone with an incredible expertise, you can trust your own judgment and you can execute so, so well. Um, I'm a big fan of Nathan and a newfound, um, you know, interest has arisen in, in the Nordic manifesto. So I think I am yes. I'm, I'm now hooked into another area of research, Scotty Bagnall.
1: Oh, I love this. I love this. Before you go into your Nordic research, I think Mm. we need to talk more mushrooms. Yes. And I think we should definitely talk to Thomas, our mushroom nerd for today. Mm. His knowledge of mushrooms is next level. He joined us on the walk on Saturday where we went through the forest foraging for mushrooms. And he joins us now. Today, we're joined by Thomas Strafko. I had the pleasure of meeting Thomas on this incredible mushroom walk that I did here in Brisbane. It was called Mushroom Meander with Martin Martini, and Thomas's knowledge of mushrooms is pretty amazing. Thomas, thank you for joining us today. Would you like to introduce yourself and tell us how you became obsessed with mushrooms?
4: Well, I think your introduction is self-explanatory. I I became obsessed with mushrooms um, for many, many reasons. (laughs) I think everything led me in that direction. I grew up uh, spending a lot of time in the rainforest and always looking for new things to find. Um, The food element, so mycophagy is what you call it, it really um, appealed to me, the idea of, I suppose, food sovereignty, that you can go out and collect your own food from the wild and bring it home and maybe eat something that not many other people are eating that's particularly special. Um, From my surname, you can see that I've I've got a Croatian, a Southern Slavic heritage, and I think there's a bit of a cultural connection to mushroom foraging as well. Although I think if you look back in anyone's history, I think everyone would have a cultural connection to mushroom foraging
1: because It's just living off the wild. You've, like, eaten some pretty amazing mushrooms. It's one of the things I've always been scared about. That's why I went on this mushroom tour to learn a little bit more about it. Um, Do you want to tell us a bit of the process that you go through when you've uh, found a mushroom, identifying it, um, and then that first step of eating something?
4: (laughs) It's funny. Even even if you've got the knowledge and a hundred experts telling you and everything, and you know that something is 100% edible, taking that leap to try a new species is still, um, when it's not something being eaten by many people or an Australian native, it's actually quite scary. Um, even if you've eaten many, many new mushrooms, every single new one is a, Um, a frightening experience (laughs) but (laughs) yeah it's the process of identifying it is the most important part and then lots and lots of research maybe finding it a dozen times and becoming really familiar with the mushroom, so you're not going to mistake it for something else and then yeah making that leap so it's, it's exhilarating. Yes.
1: But, uh, what do you do for your daily job? Is you, are you a mushroom forager during the day? Is this a passion or that's one thing I'd love to know?
4: Well, I, I wish I could make it my day job, but no, I'm a school teacher. I'm a disability teacher <laughs> in schools. So quite a difference, but oh, awesome. at the same time when I became a teacher and I think naturally being a teacher and into mushrooms is what, Led me to running tours like you came on because educating is about mushrooms is yes. something that I'm really passionate about. So breaking down a lot of the myths and the the fear and all of that is mm. I think is important.
0: What What is it like at this time of year where you live? Um, can you describe to us what the forest is like?
4: Uh, so. We're really, really lucky in southeast Queensland. I think we've got the best of everything. So you hear of all these cool climate rainforests down south, which we have in southeast Queensland in certain areas. We've It's full of microclimates. So my favourite place is to go out to the rainforest, but the Sclerophyll Forest, there's so many different environments around and they're all... Um, hosting different types of mushrooms at different times of year and learning to find particular mushrooms. You have to become familiar with the different environments around you. Well,
0: what particular types of mushrooms are you looking at for um, at this time of year, it being you know, mid-June? Um, I'm in Melbourne, so it's quite chilly down here, but I suppose for you it's just <laughs> the beginning of the cooler weather?
4: Mm-hmm. Um. It's a fantastic time of year to go foraging. I think through autumn and winter is really the peak season. And so at this time of year, we're getting lots of cooler climate species from that you might be familiar with down south, like the pine mushrooms and um, black, grey knights, sorry. And there's black trumpets and chanterelles seem to be having a bumper season at the moment. There's yeah lots of things around at the moment. It's the peak seasons. One of
1: the things I loved on the tour that we did is your knowledge of the different species um, and, like, their actual scientific name or classification is, like, hundreds of letters long, it feels. How do you remember all of the different names of those mushrooms?
4: Uh, it's... It's like learning another language, I suppose. Well, it is learning another language because most (laughs) binomials are in Latin or Greek. And the really cool thing about taxonomy is that most um, things are named based on features that they have or a way that they're different from something that's similar to them. So if you look at different Mm -hmm. names of mushrooms, you can generally figure out something about it and figure out what the meaning is from the name and through that process it helps you remember because you're kind of learning bits of latin and greek and um terminology that yeah is new to mushrooming but also a lot of words that are similar in latin to english so yeah you build connections that way i love that learn specific names that way in australia i think at a best guess we've described a very conservative guess, we've described about 5% of our mushroom species um, and around the world a similar situation. Most mushrooms don't have common names. So between friends, Martin That's and amazing. I, if we do the tour together, we might come up with our own familiar names for mushrooms, short names I suppose, and then you get into the problems that common names for something can be, used for a different mushroom in a different area, especially overseas. And being as specific as possible, especially if you're thinking about eating wild mushrooms, is really important. So knowing exactly which species you have.
1: I find that is wild that like only 5% of the mushrooms have sort of been identified. Why do you think that is?
0: It's like Pokemon, Scotty you got to yeah. catch them all and you just don't know what's out there yet. <laughs>
4: That's right. And, um, there can be very similar looking mushrooms in the same genus, the same family that can only be separated using microscopic details or DNA barcoding and even then it gets more, more and more complicated. So there's a lot of issues figuring out. Um, how to separate species as well. But for the most part, it's just been an underfunded science throughout history, especially in Australia. There's, there's not much research funding available for mycologists in Australia.
0: So as a mushroom nerd yourself, what kind of places um, does mushrooming or mushroom foraging take you? I'm anticipating that because you're fascinated You might be in pursuit of certain types of spores, from particular types of trees, grown in particular types of areas. Um, What what does mushroom foraging actually entail for someone who is as obsessed as you?
4: (laughs) So I suppose over the years building up uh, um, knowledge of seasons and sometimes it's just getting a vibe that something might be growing at a particular time. And then, yeah, it's it's finding the specific environment they like to grow in, doing a lot of research on the particular species you're looking for, and then heading out. Sometimes I travel for four hours one way just on a day trip to look for something specific. So it takes up a lot of your free time, and it's it's a bit of a dangerous hobby to get into, but it takes me to some amazing places.
0: Do people ever leave drop pins in places where they've found particular mushrooms or does that, I suppose, reveal the secret spot to too many people? Mm. Ah.
4: So there's an app that is developed by National Geographic called iNaturalist. I'm not sure if you've heard of it. It's, um, it's really big. Mm. Um, you can upload your observations of things from the wild and then have your peers identify them and eventually it can get to a research grade and populate the Atlas of Living Australia. It's quite a good app, but part of that is having a specific drop pin for each observation. So there is some cheap ways you can look for particular edible species on iNaturalist and search out the coordinates, but most mushroom mm-hmm. foragers um, who won't give up their secret spots even for science a lot of the time <laughs>
1: And I think, like, um, maybe wrapping up, you had the pleasure as well as I to attend an amazing mushroom digger station at Elsker. I would love to know your thoughts in terms of that because I found it mind-blowing, all of those different dishes. Were there mushrooms on that menu you'd never tried before? And What was that experience like for you?
4: There was... One mushroom on that menu I'd never tried before. The first one that came out, the beefsteak mm-hmm. mushroom, the fistulina mm-hmm. wasulifera, it's called. Um, and yes. that's, that's a fantastic mushroom. It's, you, you cut them in half and it's got the texture of steak and it looks like a piece of meat. People eat them. One of the mu- only mushrooms I've heard of people eating raw. Um, but, yeah, mm-hmm. they, they tend to grow further south. And I've never come across one in my travels, unfortunately. So I was very excited to see that first up on the menu. And then as far as the rest of the night goes, I thought the dishes were, yeah, really, really interesting. And the flavor combinations were amazing. So when I cook with wild mushrooms, I'm not generally – I'm not a – Um, fancy chef so I'm not (laughs) don't have the techniques (laughs) uh, the types of things that they were doing it was it was really cool to see them on the menu all these wild mushrooms
0: Your go to with some of the mushrooms that you forage what do you you don't have to be a fancy cook to enjoy food or to cook Um, what was your feast like
4: oh with the oyster mushrooms they were in a noodle soup so That was really good. That's kind of my go-to with oyster mushroom. Dry them off a little bit and then, you know, put them into the broth. Um, My normal go-to with cooking mushrooms is a bit of the scientific approach I've heard about as well, which is using no oil in a dry, dry pan and letting the water leach out of the mushroom and then keeping it on until the water leaches back into the mushroom and then you add your butter. Because the cell walls of the mushroom will just keep mm. absorbing oil and keep absorbing and absorbing, and it will until it's cooked. Mm. But if you cook the mushroom in its own juices and let the water leach out and soak back in, all the flavor it stays in the mushroom, and it's much healthier as well because it's using less oil. So that's my normal go-to. I have
1: never fry. heard that before. Yeah, that's, uh,
0: I believe some people call it a wet fry. Is that a, wet fry. a
1: wet fry? Yeah. yeah. I don't know the name so of the Some people call it a
0: wet fry. You can Google it. <laughs> it was
4: one of the Mushroom Facebook groups, the, the scientific way to cook mm. mushroom because the cell walls are made of chitin, which is the same stuff as skin or um, fingernails, uh. crustacean shells, and it's really hard to break down and it takes a long time to cook that. So, yeah, mm. that's my my favorite way of doing it, and it tends to make the mushrooms flavor a lot more amplified as well
0: mm. well i'm very um jealous of the biodiversity of your diet thomas um i'm wondering if you could share with us if people wanted to follow you along on your journey um how could they find um yeah some of your mushroom foraging adventures
4: um, well, so I'm on Instagram, my account is Tomushed, so T H O M U S H E D. And aside from that, I'm pretty active on Facebook mushroom groups. So I started one of the larger groups called Australia New Zealand Fungus Identification. So through that, you can find me and contact me, and also post up pictures to have identified. By myself or some of the other experts on the page. Um, Or come along to one of our mushroom meanders next season. I'm not sure if we're going to do any more this season unless it starts raining again in southeast Queensland. But um, yeah, next season we we should be doing a whole lot more.
1: Amazing. I would definitely recommend it. I learned a heap on that mushroom meander, and it was heaps of fun. So definitely look out for that next season. Thank you so much, Thomas, for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you about mushrooms. Thanks so much for having me.
0: What I found really interesting about Thomas is that you can be as wild as you want to be. And (laughs) living off the land doesn't just mean growing an urban garden in your suburban backyard um it can also mean going out and and foraging but with the caveat of being mindful that poison exists in various yes. places
1: at okay. i think it's time it's show and tell time
0: oh great it's always good when it's show and tell time um am i going first this week
1: yeah you could go first this week oh. i think i went first the last couple of weeks
0: yeah beautiful Okay, my show and tell <laughs> for Mushroom Week is a yes. recipe in a book that I've only recently acquired. Um, it Ooh. is an earlier text by the wonderful Annie Smithers. It's not her newest text. Mm-hmm. This book is Annie's Farmhouse Kitchen. Annie is the wonderful farm-to-table chef at Du Firmier, and her particular style of cooking is inspired by... French cuisine. Um, I love it. Where is uh, Du Femier? Du is in Trentham. It's um, Uh. in Victoria and in a beautiful uh, rural setting where Annie has the absolute luxury of using beautiful produce from her farm, but also surrounding farms. And at this time of year, of course, it's mushroom season, I've chosen to show and tell a recipe from Annie's book... (laughs) And his farmhouse kitchen. This book is so beautiful. It has illustrations by a lady named Robin Coucher. There aren't any oh. photos of any of the foods in this book. Everything is beautifully oh, wow. illustrated. and
1: oh, gorgeous.
0: The chapters are organized according to the seasons and mm-hmm. food things are organized according to menus within those seasons. And within oh. the winter chapter, there is a beautiful menu suggestion. That features, for entree, a celeriac and potato soup with parsley puree and a poached egg. Oh, yum. For main, chicken in morning. And this is what's going to be my show and tell, what that actually involves. And then for dessert, hazelnut puddings with malt ice cream. Yum. This sounds like Mm. the kind of menu that I want immediately, but what I will be making before any of the other things will be the chicken in morning.
1: Is this, is this morning spelt like good morning or morning no. <laughs> no. sad morning chicken?
0: sad chicken dressed in black. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So um, this Poor is, chicken. this chicken is dressed in black. Yes. However, I, I'm just going to draw your attention to another variety of chicken that you can buy. Mm. I have seen it in Australia, but I first saw it in China when I was traveling in Chengdu in the marketplaces, mm. there were de-feathered chickens hanging at butcher stalls that had a black skin. And I'd never seen a chicken with oh, black wow. skin before. No, I never. It, it's a thing. And huh. um, you can get them here, at least in Victoria. I've seen them in Asian butchers. And okay. And some shops at the Queen Vic Market every now and then have them too. So if you know about them, you might see them. Anyway. Okay. We aren't after a black-skinned chicken okay. for this recipe. We are making the chicken seem like it's dressed in black by stuffing beneath the skin with truffle.
1: Hello. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay.
0: Mm-hmm. I'm, there. We yeah. I'm there. Here you go. I'm there. So you could go about this a couple of different ways. And what I imagine would be a little bit more of a hip pocket friendly option would be to make a truffle butter and to stuff Mm. it beneath the skin, you know, that that space between the chicken skin and the flesh. You want to get your hand into the chicken and separate the skin from the rest of the bird just gently so you're not puncturing it and you want to fill it with a compound butter of your liking. And if you're Mm. using a gorgeous black truffle, you've got the potential there to really create a wonderful, chicken in mourning now this is what um, Annie suggests she she suggests finally shaving two-thirds of a truffle
3: mm-hmm. and
0: placing four or five large slices of truffle beneath each beneath the skin of each breast that's a lot of truffle isn't it um, no,
1: no, no
0: no okay sure no. Oh, wow. <laughs> And the remaining of the truffle is shaved on top. (laughs) Oh, yes. Just in case it wasn't black enough. Yeah.
1: And is the whole chicken served just as a whole chicken?
0: Well, this particular chicken is just the crowns, but I want to do it to a whole Uh, bird. I want to do it to a whole chook. I like roasting the whole chook and then use the bones for soup. Imagine the broth Mm. afterwards.
1: (gasps) Oh, truffle ramen. You could make amazing
0: chicken would yes. ramen broth. That would be, un- that would be truffle unreal. Chicken.
1: Yes. Oh, oh yum. Like a I love ramen soup. in winter. Mm. Mm. Yum.
0: Okay, well, that's my show and tell, chicken in morning.
1: So I don't have a truffle to show you. That would have been super cool. But for my show and tell, I have something truffle related because mm. if you haven't known already, I'm obsessed with truffles. Truffles are... Probably my number one food, and then number two would be yuzu. But I think truffles trump yuzu, wow. and I'm pretty obsessed with yuzu. So this is a recipe book,
0: the Truffle Cookbook. Ah, oh, by Rodney Dunn, this, of the Hungarian Kitchen.
1: This entire book is truffle recipes. Yeah, so every single recipe in this book is truffle. Um, written by Rodney Dunn. He even signed it. I've got like Aww. a sign. Let's see.
0: There you go. Did you get this in Tassie, um, Scotty Bagel?
1: I got this in Tassie at the Agrarian Kitchen. Um, amazing. If you go to Tasmania, you have to go to the Agrarian Kitchen. Beautiful food, absolutely stunning. They also do cooking classes. I've never done a cooking class because I haven't been there long enough. Um, but they do some incredible cooking classes. They do cheese making there as well, I'm sure. Um, they've got a few cheese making courses, which would be pretty amazing. But yeah, this is one of my most favourite cookbooks. I have a lot of favourite cookbooks, but this one particular is excellent mm. for truffle recipes. I've made quite a few out of this book. Um, one of my favourite um, savoury recipes I've made out of this book is this beautiful. I'm wondering whether you've made this before. This really? is, i um, showing a dish here. Maybe, at do you want to describe what you're looking at? So do you know Scott what is this is? So,
0: I'm holding up a book here and it looks like a potato bake, maybe like a scallop potato dish with truffles shaved on top. It's exactly what it
1: looks oh. like,
0: yeah. but it's
1: not. Oh, it's a Roman-style semolina gnocchi.
0: Oh yeah! Uh, you know so what? I've never had it before, but I've seen it even in Ottolenghi books.
1: <laughs> yeah. So it's really, really yummy. It looks sort of like a semolina dough that you slice Mm. up and then it sort of looks like a scalloped potato bake and then you just layer it with truffle. So good. Absolutely divine. And this Mm. is my absolute favourite truffle custard tart. Hello. Truffle Mm. in custard is
2: seriously
1: delicious and okay. this recipe is divine there's 10 mil of grated truffle in the custard mixture and then a short crust pastry and then just a bit of grated truffle on top mm. and you might think like mushroom custard that's disgusting but the umami <laughs> of truffle it's got this earthiness
0: <laughs> you might think that sounds gross but you are wrong it you is fantastic. are
1: wrong <laughs> Maybe it's an acquired taste. I don't know. There's probably people out there that would have truffle custard and um, not think it's a great idea. I think it is an excellent idea. It was actually. (laughs) (laughs) Fun fact, it was actually the dish that got me into MasterChef. I did a truffled zabione filled Mm. in a shoe pastry and that was my audition dish celebrating the truffle. I made the shoe pastry look like a truffle and it had this crackle in top which I dyed black, and I filled it with this Zabione, which was infused with cust- with truffle. And then one day I'd like
0: to eat this, please. Oh,
1: yes, I will make yeah. it for you.
0: Yeah, we it need to do a so thing. Good. Yeah, we should do mm. that. Yes, I have ideas, Scotty. Mm. Oh, interesting. I can't ideas. wait for
1: truffle season. It's yeah. so close.
0: <gasps>
1: I'm gonna be doing all the truffle desserts, I think.
0: Well, I want to make a chicken in morning. Oh yes,
1: I think mm. you should.
0: Hmm. I think let's, you should. Let's put on a dinner. Can we put on a dinner? Hmm. Yes. How do we do that? I don't know. <laughs> we'll come back to you next week, listeners. <laughs> yes.
1: <laughs> we need. We need a. We need a like a venue. If any. If yeah. any venues are listening right now, <laughs> it is up.
0: We want to create a wake themed menu. You know, we're going to be mourning the chicken. Our desserts are going to be black. They're going to look like they're burnt and we're all devastated about it. But everything will be yum. <laughs>
1: yes. We should do mofo. Mofo's on right now. We should definitely do dark mofo. Next year.
0: Next year. Next, let's do it. Next year. Dark mofo, yeah.
1: if you're listening, reserve us a stand.
0: We'll bring the truffles.
1: <laughs> we'll bring the truffles. The truffles will already be there. I yeah. always uh, have a truffle when I go, I usually go to Darkmofo. This is the first time. Well, last two years it's been cancelled. This year it's on, but I haven't gone. But I've gone every year for like last seven years, um, wow. and I always stash a truffle or two in my luggage and take home with me. That's my like travel present.
0: Is that a biosecurity issue? I don't know.
1: I, I don't think know. He is. <laughs> Forget Leave I said that, that. I definitely don't do that. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, my God. So that's my show and tell. Thank you, Rodney. Amazing book. I love it so much. If you want to cook with truffles, buy this book. It's amazing.
0: I want it. And I'm sold.
1: Yes. And we need to go to Agrarian Kitchen. So we'll do mofo and then we'll go to Agrarian Kitchen. We'll do a cheese-making course. Yeah. And then we'll buy some truffles and we'll do a truffle dinner at Dark Mofo and it's just going to be amazing. All
0: right, next year we're going to do it. Next mm. year. Book it in. Done. Thank you for listening to our podcast on mushrooms. We have absolutely loved this topic today and I suppose my key takeaway from today has come from Nathan and uh, what I'm really loving about his approach to food is – the push to do better, to be better, to not be satisfied with a, a cafe, that is giving you the irrits, you know. Or oh, there is that motivation there to, to, I suppose, always pursue quality and um, to not be satisfied with second best ingredients, particularly if they're not in season.
1: Absolutely. And just be brave enough to believe in yourself and go mm. out there and do what you want to do. I really enjoyed, you know, Nathan talking about having that clarity of thought in not looking at what everyone else does, because I think sometimes mm. that can really cloud your judgment, and you run the risk of um, taking too much inspiration from what people are doing literally, yeah. and going back to basics and looking at nature and being inspired by the tools and ingredients that you're working with. I think that is an amazing takeaway for me.
0: Absolutely. I'm looking forward to coming up to Brisbane, Scotty, and dining at ALSCA. They are open three days a week. Uh, On Sundays, they open spontaneously for events like the Mushroom Digger Station that was discussed during this podcast. And that motivates me to strategically book my flight to Brisbane to make sure I'm there on a day that ALSCA is open. yes (laughs)
1: thank you for joining us if you have any thoughts um or ideas for things that you would like us to cover in upcoming episodes please let us know and if you would like to enjoy the visual experience of this go to youtube you can watch this and subscribe and like the episode and um we're available on all podcast channels we'd love to hear from you get in touch
0: You've been listening to Cream, Eggs and Jam. I'm Elise Pulbrook, and you can find me on Instagram at Elise underscore foodperson.
1: And I'm Scott Bagnall and you can find me on Instagram at SSBagnall. If you'd like to send us your show and tell, you can email us elise at gmail.com.
0: Or if you'd like the visual experience of this podcast, you can find us on YouTube at Cream Eggs and Jam.
1: Have a great day!
0: Happy baking!